Move in the lives of your people. Father, we pray that you would move in this place tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Sean, can you turn off the heater? It's getting pretty hot up here. There's a lot of things going on in Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, that people just don't understand. The prophet, well, God has told the prophet to tell the people that they are to submit to Babylonians who are coming into the country and attacking them and will soon dominate them. And it's just not making sense to the people. But we should be able to relate to that because in our trials and our tribulations, so many times you don't have understanding. Things don't always make sense. But the thing that we do know is, is that God's working out a plan. And sometimes that's the only information that we get. And some of the most detailed verses on trials are in James chapter 1. and verse 2, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So these hardships in our lives, God's doing a work in them, and God's doing a work through them. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. It seems kind of funny that right in the middle of that with trials, there would be the, the, the encouragement to ask for wisdom. Well, it's all in context, so what we're told is, is that as we're going through trials, especially when we have these trials that are testing us to the very core of who we are, and, and it just seems like so many have forsaken us, and at times we can even be mistakenly think that, that God has forsaken us, Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, give me wisdom in the things that I go through, the things that I experience, so that I will gain all that you would have for me. That we would be a people who are quick to pray, understanding that as all things work together for the good, God's working good in our lives through all of these things. Well, that's kind of what is going on here in Jeremiah's day. Not even kind is exactly what's going on in Jeremiah's day. Now, on Sunday nights in our study in 2 Kings, we saw where God's words of warning have come to pass in his judgment. His judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel as Assyria had come in, and we saw that Israel was defeated, and Assyria took the people away captives. This occurred in 722 B.C. This should have been a warning to the southern kingdom of Judah. As they saw the things that Israel was involved in, they saw the idolatry and how the people forsook the Lord, and then the judgment of the Lord came upon them, they should have been wise to these things. Well, over the course of time, Babylon has risen up. They defeated Assyria and has become the new world power. So as we enter in here in Jeremiah chapter 24, it's now 597 B.C., and we are looking at the southern kingdom now of Judah. They have become just as godless as their sister Israel was. They've gotten involved in idolatry. We've seen good kings and we've seen bad kings. At the end, we see a succession of, of bad kings, and the kings are just a reflection of the people and the state of the nation. We have seen where Babylon will be God's instrument of correction against this southern kingdom. And so once again, just going through these names, and these names are so sim uh, similar that they can be confusing, but I just want to go back through this for those of you who, who are inspired by history and just to kind of maybe get a flow of where we're going. 
Again, it can be kind of confusing because some of these names are very similar. But we have King Josiah. King Josiah was the last king to do what was right in the sight of God. He goes out to do battle against Egypt, but he's defeated. And actually, King Josiah, he's killed. Because he's killed, his son, Jehoahaz, he takes his place. But Jehoahaz only lasts about three months before Pharaoh, who is now over Judah because he has defeated them in war, he replaces him. Pharaoh then makes Jehoahaz's brother, Jehoiakim, king. This man would reign for 11 years doing what is evil in God's sight. So again, continually pulling the nation away from God. After him, his son Jehoiachin becomes king. Now, the theologians debate if he was 8 years old or 18 years old. I have to believe that he was 18 years old is why God holds him accountable. But he only lasted about 3 months and 8 days. He was convinced by his uncle to rebel against um, Babylon because at this time Babylon had come in and defeated Judah. And he rebelled against Babylon and he was taken away captive. And so Zedekiah, not his uncle, but his brother, Zedekiah then became the last king to rule before the destruction of Jerusalem. And so this brings us to chapter 24, verse 1. The Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple by the Lord, after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive uh, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the craftsmen, the smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. Well, Jeconiah is Jehoiachin. It was dur- during Jehoiachin's brother Jehoiachin's reign that Judah first came under Babylonian captivity. So once again, what happens is Babylon's a world power. They're going in and they're conquering nations. Well, these conquering nations, Babylon in this case, would not have the ability to occupy nations. It would take too many people and too many resources. So what they would do is they would go in, they would threaten the king, and they would tell him, we'll leave all as it is if you pay us tribute. And basically what they were doing is they were taxing them. And so then they would move out and they would probably leave people there to kind of keep an eye on what was going on and all, but then they would go and conquering and so on and so forth. And every once in a while, these kings would get tired of paying that tribute and they would rebel, and then Babylon in this particular case would go back in and reconquer it. Matter of fact, they went back in and they reconquered Judah three times. It was on that third time where they had enough and they just simply destroyed all of Jerusalem and they burnt down the... The, the, the village and destroyed the temple. So there was the very first time when Babylon came in and what they did and what is being described here is when Daniel and his three fin- friends were taken captive. As they were taken captive, what they would do is, is go in and take the best and the brightest because they didn't want you raising another army up. They didn't want you to become superior than them in any way. Matter of fact, they wanted that resource for themselves. And so, again, it was during the first conquering of Judah that we see Daniel and his three friends taken captive, and they were brought to Babylon. Later, Jehoiachin will be taken captive to Babylon, and that's when they believe that the prophet Ezekiel was taken there as well. He was taken about 30 miles north of Babylon to the river Chebar. So it's for the purpose of understanding this trial that God has allowed his people to 
enter. He's allowed him to enter into these trials, and he's going to use this picture in order them in order for them to understand what's going on. So he's got these pictures of these two baskets of figs, and he's wanting his prophet to know and to understand what's going on so that he's able to convey the message. Now, once again, we need to look at this, and we need to gain understanding in how the Lord works and understand that we're not always going to understand what the Lord's doing. And matter of fact, what seems to be right is in fact wrong, and what seems to be wrong is in fact right, as far as if you're trying to just make an interpretation as far as, and the subject is, the people who were taken captive, and the people who were left to till the land, and the people who fled to, uh, fled to Egypt. And so verses 2 through 7 One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad, very bad, which cannot be eaten. They are so bad. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have set out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And so, going into a trial, something similar to this, you see the people were taken captive, and you can have the mindset, those must have been the bad ones. And those people that were left, well, you would make the determination, more than likely looking at it according to human understanding, then those would be the good ones. But that's not what God's plan is. God's got this particular plan. He's going to allow these people that he's using for his future plans. He's allowing them to go into captivity, to go into this trial, to go into this hardship, into this time that they, again, don't necessarily understand all that's going on. But he's using that to prepare them because he's got, and we'll see that in a couple of chapters, he's got a future and a hope for them. And so the trials that we enter in, they're for the purpose of refining And in the midst of it, well, at least at the beginning of it, we don't always know what's going on. We don't always understand. And usually we go from the perspective of what in the world did I do wrong to deserve this? Well, maybe you did nothing wrong. Maybe God looked at you as a prize, a prize that just needed a little refinement, a prize that needed a little pressure for the good to really be able to be seen through it, for God's hand to be used by you. And so God allows us to go into these times just simply for his own good. And so we've got this picture of these good figs. Again, you wouldn't think that the captives would be the good ones, but truly they are. And again, case in point, we see Daniel and Ezekiel were two of the ones who were taken captive. These captives represent the nucleus of those whom God will use to fulfill his promise. Because what is God doing in the Bible? Well, your kids are learning this as they're looking at judgment and they're looking at grace. But really what we see in the Old Testament, we see it from Genesis all the way through, really, to the end of the Bible. But we're seeing, as far as the Old Testament, to bring man to the point that he'll cling to God's grace when God's grace is revealed. But really, it's all about the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so part of his plan for bringing these people captive to Babylon was for the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
God's working this plan out. And again, it doesn't make sense always, doesn't understand until after the fact, but all of this is leading the way to Messiah. Remember, the good that is working together with the heart of the Old Testament is all according to God's plan for mankind's redemption. Mankind's redemption. God's working this out for our salvation. God's worked all of these things out for your salvation. So the things that we're, we're, we're reading about here, even in Jeremiah, you know, these obscure books, Second Kings on Sunday night, it's all working together for the day that you submitted your life to Jesus Christ. And that day is working together with all of those past days for the future days and who God is going to work through you for their salvation as well. That's the priority of God. It's not our well-being. It's not our comfort. It's for the salvation of mankind so that he can have eternity in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we always have to be of that mindset. That's what things are always working towards. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, it says, He indeed, speaking of Jesus Christ, was foreordained, this was God's plan all along, before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times, was revealed to us recently, for you through whom him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope is in God so that my faith, my trusting in God for today in the midst of these trials, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the things that don't understand, my faith is going to be in God. We just studied that on Sunday mornings as we went through Hebrews chapter 11. We saw those people who exercise faith by not understanding what God's call, what God's command was, but the only thing they knew was to go, and they did. And because of that, they exercised faith, and they were an example to us. But there's also hope. Hope is trusting in God for our future. We know that our hope is not of this world. And so, what does man of this world try to do? We do all that we do for the purpose of fostering comfort and security and all of these things that can only truly come from the hand of God. And so, our hope is not in this world. I've read to the end of the book, the world gets destroyed. It's going to be gone. It's for the very elements of it. It's going to be destroyed to the most minute parts. But we have something that is just so much better, and it's there. It's in God, what he has for us, that future and that hope. So as with most trials, they can be confusing and contrary to our ways of thinking, but our will is not being worked out here And that's what you have to be of the mindset when things are happening that you don't understand. It's not your will that is being worked out. When you insert your will into what God's doing, all it's going to do is to extend the trial that you're going through. God's got a reason and purpose for it. He's got a timetable, as we're going to see. And anything that I do that is contrary to it, that is not submitted to his will, is only going to extend it. And so it's God's will that must be worked out that being the case, I must trust. And trust involves not knowing all of the details. For us control freaks, that can be a really hard thing. And God, God is patient, and God's a great teacher, and God will take a lifetime if it's necessary. And so we know God God is able to keep a remnant for his purposes, and that's what he's done through the Babylonian captivity. 
in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The Lord knows those who are his, and he's never going to forget. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. And so these two baskets, first one is filled with these good figs that are good to eat. These good figs are those people who are being taken away captive to Babylon. But there's another crate that is there. There's another basket. These are the bad or the rotten figs. Verse 8. And as the bad figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so bad. Surely, thus says the Lord, so I will give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem who remain in the land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will deliver them to trouble into all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they are consumed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. It's pretty bad when you're considered so rotten to the core that you have defiled the land that God has given his people. So as it's spelled out here, these figs, they represent people such as King Zedekiah, his court, those left behind, and those who had fled to Egypt. Now, the thing about all of this is, is that the prophet has been telling them what God has desired. And so those who are in that good basket, those are the ones who act in accordance with the word of God. Those who are in the bad basket are those who walked contrary or lived their lives or acted contrary to the word of God. And we've got a rich picture there. Those who didn't really understand He wants us to go off into Babylonian captivity, but this is what God's telling me, so this is what I'm going to do. In God's sight, that's good. But those didn't make any sense. We're going to stand strong against these these invaders. We're going to rebel against these invaders. And God had told them through the prophet that that's rebellion against me because Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar is in actuality. He's a godless man, but my servant at this point to achieve my will. And those are the ones who who are rotten. Remember the opposition when Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall? Where did it come from? It came from the people who were left behind in the land. It came from that basket of rotten fruit. Rotten fruit is only good to be destroyed. And we see the destruction tools that will be used are famine, sword, and plague. What does this mean to us? Well, we're told in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, what is to be our fruit? And you need to make... Every, time, every once in a while, we kind of come to a little bit of a checklist, an opportunity to kind of see where we're at with the Lord, see this, see where we're at, and is change necessary? To look at a good, honest picture in this mirror that is the Word of God. Well, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, we're told, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so, looking at my life, I pray that you look at your life, how's your fruit? Is it good? Is it good to be partaken of, or is it rotten? Because remember, fruit, well, you have a fruit tree. Well, if you're producing fruit, that would be a great picture, being of a fruit tree. Who is it that partakes of the fruit? It's usually somebody else that comes and picks fruit off and partakes of it. And that's a great picture of the Christian life. 
somebody should be able to come and partake of the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit working inside of me and that which I produce to the glory of God, it would be for the benefit of my brothers and my sisters. And so as I'm looking at this fruit that, that I am to produce, is it good, is it of God, or is it rotten, is it of the flesh? And so first on the list is love. Am I producing love? Am I producing the good fruit of love? That's sacrificial love. Loving others, even to my personal detriment, or the opposite of that, which would be rotten, selfishness. Am I in it just to, for, for what I'm able to get out of it as far as service, as far as coming to church? Or am I in it to, to give of what God has first given to me? Make that determination. Is your fruit good? Is your fruit bad? Secondly on the list, is it joy or is it restlessness? Is it joy? It's not to really have anything to do with happiness, but just joyful. To understand that God's doing a work and to understand that I'm growing in the knowledge of the Lord and there's other people growing in the knowledge of the Lord and this is a good thing and it's a thing that we're able to all do together and it's just the beauty of God's people coming together and there should be this element of joy or is this wrestleness, restlessness or maybe even conflict would be a better term between us so that when coming to church you think of that person in your mind and it just kind of ruins the experience. Well, the person you should be thinking, the person's ruining the experience is really yourself and, and, and not that other person because in Christ we overcome that. Thirdly, which is it good fruit of peace or the bad fruit of conviction? Have, have you truly repented? Have you given your life completely and totally over to your Lord Jesus Christ? If you truly have, then you'll have that peace that surpasses understanding and that's a good fruit. If not, you'll have the rotten fruit of conviction. Conviction is the idea that you know you need to change, but you've been unwilling to do so. Fourthly, the good fruit of patience, or is it that bad fruit of just being irritable? Patience, patience is the ability to put up with one another when they're contrary to you. Now, I don't have to be real patient with my wife, because I love my wife, I appreciate my wife, but it's that person who goes against your grain, and so just the ability to die to self and to be able to die to self for as long as is necessary for the benefit of that other person because God did that to you. We're told that we were enmity with God. How old were you when you were saved? All of those years, you were rubbing God the wrong way, but God was patient. God was patient. God was long-suffering. Do you have the good fruit of kindness or the bad fruit of madness? And when I say madness, I don't mean craziness. I just mean being mad all the time. Nothing worse than somebody's mad all the time. You just don't want to approach them. And if you don't want to approach somebody, if we just have that sour look on our face all the time, or maybe that personality that just produces anger, well, then where's the ministry in all of that? Well, kindness, if I'm hurting... If I need some, I'll go pick of that fruit of kindness because kindness will be an attractiveness. It'll be that which draws me to that person. And again, it brings you to the tree you're able to partake. And as you're able to partake, it's for the spiritual betterment, really, of both parties. And how about the good fruit of goodness or the bad fruit of wickedness? Goodness would be God-likeness as we all become more and more like Jesus Christ, bearing that fruit, or... Wickedness becoming more and more like the flesh. The good fruit of faithfulness or the bad fruit of laziness. The good fruit of gentleness or the bad fruit of pridefulness. The good fruit of self-control or the bad fruit of out-of-control. 
what's the state of your fruit today? We need to take these we need to take these checklists and we need to embrace them. They're, they're not meant to be all-inclusive and all of that, but just this spot check of where I'm at in my Christian life with the Lord Jesus Christ. Fruit rots when it is no longer under the influence of the Holy Spirit, but comes under the influence of the flesh. The flesh, left to itself, it rots, it stinks, it's something that is really, really repulsive. The Spirit is always something that is beautiful. The Spirit is always something that has an attractiveness about it. Now entering into chapter 25, we must remember Jeremiah's original calling. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, we saw it about four months ago. It says, Behold, I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. So he's not just a prophet to Judah. He's not just a prophet to Israel. He's a prophet to all of the nations. And so his ministry encompasses a lot more than just Judah. So not only was Jeremiah a man called to speak God's word to Israel, but he was also called to speak God's word to the Gentile nations, just as Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles for God's reasons and God's purposes. Now, it's God's desire that it would be to reflect his goodness and his grace, but even here it reflects judgment and justice as well, that these nations would understand what happened to Israel, what happened to Judah. I've heard about the times in King David's and Solomon's times when they used to thrive and and now look at them. And the idea would be they forsook their God. And this is what happens when you forsake the living God. So chapter 25, verses 1 and 2. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah and the fourth year Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying... So at this time, Jeremiah has been ministering for some 23 years. He's delivering what has been delivered to him. And keep in mind, he has seen no real fruit of his ministry. At least we're not told of it. But he continues to do what God calls him to do. There was that one time when he was ready to give up, but it was as a fire that was burning inside of him that he could not hold it back any longer. He had to continue to speak the words that God had given him. His ministry would last for some 40 years. So in this chapter, we have two messages to two different people. And the first message is to the Jews, verse 3. For the thirteenth year of Josiah, the king of, or the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, even to this day, this is the twenty-third year of which the word of the Lord has come to me. I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. And the Lord sent to you all his servants and prophets. So Jeremiah is not the only one with this message, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Repent now every one of his evil way and his evil doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, these false idols, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words. 
And so he's speaking to the Jews. And it's a very important message. Now, the important message is being delivered to the people who should know better. These are God's chosen people whose God's word has been delivered to. Not just in Jeremiah's day, but they have the same Bible that you have upon your lap. They've got the first five books of the Bible. They have that. The king was to write it out. Every king was to write it out by his own hand so that they would know what the will of God is. So they're all accountable. So what is the main charge against them? And this is important for the church to know as well because it is mentioned four times. I've underlined it in my Bible. It's in verses 3 and 4, and then in 7 and 8, you have not listened. You have not listened. You have not listened with the intent of doing. These are those who had such an advantage in that God was speaking to them. And God was going out. Remember, God speaks to us through his word. And when we refused to listen, what did God do, at least in the Old Testament times anyway? He would raise his voice by speaking through the prophet. And so there's no excuse. And their problem, they would not listen. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and there was that contingent of troops that, and officials that came to arrest him? Peter thought that he could save Jesus, who was going to the cross to save Peter, but Peter thought he could stand up and deliver the Lord from that. What did he do? He pulled out a sword and he whacked off this official's ear. Malchus was his name. He cut off Malchus's ear. Jesus picked the ear up and healed him and, and put it back. And what's the main problem with that? Well, obviously, this man, Malchus, is contrary to Christ, and Peter's for Christ. But what's the damage that Peter's doing here? Well, you cut off his ear, he doesn't have an ear to hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. And I mean that quite seriously, because I have to think, through us acting in the flesh, how many ears have we cut off? How many people have we driven away so that they will not hear Well, we see it's essential. They're going into captivity. Well, at least this captivity is happening because they would not listen. Now, again, it's been said that if the Bible says something, obviously it's important. This is the word of God. If he says it twice, it's very important. If he says it's three times, it's of the utmost importance. What happens when he says it four times? He's really trying to get your attention because he's really trying to drive the point home. Problem. If man will not listen then he will not see himself as a sinner. Because of that, he will not repent. And if we do not repent, then God will not forgive. God's forgiveness is based upon man's repentance. Once again, I've said it many times, John the Baptist came preaching the doctrine of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 4.17, Jesus preached the doctrine of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 4, And the Lord had sent you... Uh, sent to you all his servants and prophets, rising up early and sending them. But you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. They say, repent. And so there's this opportunity. But they had closed their ears to the opportunity. Remember King Ahab? We studied him in Second Kings on Sunday nights. He was married to Jezebel. King Ahab was a northern king, and he was one of the most godless northern kings. There came a time when God was bringing judgment upon him. And Ahab, at least for that moment, repented and God relented. Ahab was very deserving of the judgment that was to come, but he repented before the Lord. And because he repented, God gave him opportunity. Now, he went back to his evil ways and he he ended up being destroyed. But you just see the heart of God. 
Now, if you fast forward, we're not going to turn there, but if you would look at Revelation, there's the seven churches there. And a common phrase in Revelation chapters 2, verses 7, 11, 17, 29, and then in chapter 3, 6, 13, and 22 is, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so Christ has a message to each of those churches. And who is he addressing? He's addressing the messenger or the pastor. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. On a couple of those, there's also attached a punishment for those people, those churches, that do not hear. And so this is hearing for the purpose of repenting. What happened? Israel closed their ears. They would not hear. Verse 8, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Notice he refers to him as his servant. Now, later on in Daniel, it'll seem as if maybe Nebuchadnezzar was saved. It seems like maybe his heart did turn towards the Lord, and possibly it did. But at this point, it wasn't. But this is a tool in the hand of God, that God is using him as a servant. Why? Because... His people is no better than this heathen king because he's an idolater and his people are idolaters as well. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against his land, against his inhabitants, and against these nations all around and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and their perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of myrrh, or the partying, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, and the light of the lamp, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Now, this is the very first mention that we have of God's timetable for captivity, seventy years. This is what would be necessary for God's plan to come to pass. Why 70 years? Well, we know Israel didn't celebrate the Sabbath. Every seven years, they were to give the land some time off. And they refused to do that. And so God's making up for that. But he's doing that in order to make the point. But really what God is doing here, he's offering them hope. God always offers us hope, trusting in the future knowing that there's going to be a future and a hope. Even though those, the group, that remnant, is in Babylon, God is still working the plan out. And so this tells me that for our trials, there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. It's not an open-ended thing. God's got reason and purpose, and his reason and purpose for what we experience are definite. Now, you're in the middle of it. Seems like it's going to go on forever. How long is it going to take? And again... Answer, just as long is as is necessary. But because Jeremiah was faithful, and because this was written out, it was passed along at some point to Daniel. Now Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2 says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And so in the middle of all of that, Daniel's got hope. And actually, in chapter 9, there was just a few years left until the 70 years are up. And so again, he's understanding, okay, God's doing the work, and it's almost come to the fulfillment. What does that do in Daniel's life? 
Well, it drives him to his knees. If you would read Daniel's prayer in chapter 9, you would see that it is a prayer of confession and restoration. He confesses his sin and the sins of the people. Why? Because he wants a thorough cleansing because God's going to do a thorough restoration. Daniel, Daniel had an ear to hear. The second peoples that we see, the second message was directed to the Gentile nations. These are the nations that were warned but came up against God by coming up against, rebelling against Babylon. In the remainder of the chapter, we see eight pictures of punishment coming from God against these Gentile nations. Verse 12, Then it will come to pass... When 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation in the land of Chaldeans for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring on that land all of my words which I have pronounced against it and all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall be served by them also, and I will repay them according to their deeds and according to the works of their hands. So he starts with Babylon, who is going to be judged because they took great pleasure in their destruction of Judah. And so judgment, we know, came upon them and the Medes and the Persians. But then in verse 15, we see this first illustration. And the first illustration is a cup of wrath, verses 15 through 29. And here he goes and describes the nations that will be receiving that. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and its princes, to make them a desolation and an astonishment, a hissing and a curse as it is this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes, and all his people, all the mixed multitude, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, namely Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod. Edom, Moab, and the people of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, all the kings of the coastlands which are across the sea, Dedan, Tima, Buzz, and all who are in the farthest corners, all the kings of Arabia and the kings of the mixed multitude who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of uh, uh, Elam, all the kings of the Medes, all the kings of the north, far and near, one with another and all the kingdoms of the world which are on the face of the earth, also the king of Shishach shall drink after them. Therefore you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink, be drunk, and vomit. Fall and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. And it shall be that if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you shall certainly drink. For behold, I begin to bring this calamity on the city, which is called by my name. He says, look at this example. And should you be utterly unpunished, you shall not be unpunished. For I will call for a sword on all the inhabitants of earth, says the Lord of hosts. So when he's saying he's taken the cup from the Lord's hand, the idea is he's hearing the word of the Lord. When he's saying he's given it to these countries to, to drink, he's once again telling them to repent. And so there was this opportunity this opportunity to receive of what God had. Now, if you look at history, judgment came upon all these nations, not all at the same time, maybe not even in Jeremiah's day, but it did. And so God is basically saying, since I judge Jerusalem, this needs to be a light to the Gentiles. Because I judge them, I'll certainly judge you. 
And so this should have grasped their hearts and there should have been a mass repentance. This is a cup that it's speaking of that we're all destined to drink apart from Christ. Now, on Mount Calvary, Jesus drank that cup for us. In John 18, 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? What's the cup that Jesus drank from? He drank from the cup of judgment. And that was a cup that we were all destined to drink from. But he drank from it so that we would not have to. Matter of fact, it goes even a little bit better than that. He drank from the cup of judgment so that we would be able to drink from the cup of grace. And the idea is, is that is what you are under the influence of, and that's what you are filled with. We're not under the influence of judgment. We're not filled with judgment. We are filled with grace. Those apart from Christ will drink from the cup of judgment. You will drink from a cup. You make the choice. The next picture of punishment is a roaring lion, verse 30, the first part. Therefore prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. And then verse 38, He has left his lair like the lion, for their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. Those who refuse to hear the soft voice of the Lamb of God will be brought to submission by the roar of the Lion of Judah. Either way, you hear the voice of the Lord. For us, it's as that Lamb. For them, it's going to be that roaring lion. The last part of verse 30 is the illustration of the winepress. He shall give a shout and those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The wine press is a picture of judgment, and the idea is these grapes as they're being pressed and as they're being burst. As we read to the end, as we read through the book of Revelation, we see that there's going to be that pressing in the tribulation, and it's going to come all the way through to the great white throne judgment when there's going to be a burst. And when you burst a grape, there's the red juice, and the idea is the blood and the death and all that exists. Verse 31 is a picture of a lawsuit. And noise will come to the ends of the earth, and the Lord has controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. He's going to be judge, he's going to be jury, and he's going to be executioner. The Lord, the Lord will judge all in complete and total righteousness. Fifthly, we see a picture of a storm, a coming storm, verses 32 through 33. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the farthest parts of the earth. And at that day the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented nor gathered or buried. They shall become refuge or trash on the ground. Again, you just need to see the thoroughness of the judgment of God. And how do you stop a storm? Yeah, last night. I, I was awakened about 2 o'clock in the morning. Did you, yeah, the earthquake. Yeah. And I didn't know it was coming. Nobody told me. Did I miss something? Nobody told me. And even if you told you, what good is it going to do? How are you going to stop it? You can't. You can't stop the judgment of God. Verse 33, last part, we see the refuse on the ground. Again, those bodies are going to be just like trash. And then seventhly, we see the broken pottery, a illustration that was used, I believe it was back in chapter 19. We see it in verse 34. Wail, shepherds, and cry. Roll about in the ashes, you leader of the flocks, for the days of your slaughter and dispersions are fulfilled. You shall fall like precious vessels. 
as a kid, you know, with the BB gun shooting bottles or throwing bottles and just there's something for a young boy to see that little explosion of, 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 uh, of glass. Well, this is an earthen potter, uh, pottery that is even weaker than a bottle that we'd have today. And the idea is going to be smashed just as thoroughly and just as easily as, uh, as these people who judgment is going to come upon. And then lastly, we see the illustration of a slaughtered flock. We saw it a little bit in verse 34, verse 35. And the shepherds will have no way to flee, nor the leaders of the flock to escape. The voice of the cry of the shepherds and the wail of the leaders to the flock will be heard, for the Lord has plundered their pastor, and the peaceful dwellings are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord. He has left his lair like a lion, for their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. So once again, we see all these things that are going to happen. We see God's prophecies. God's prophecies that have happened, Nebuchadnezzar and all, God told them about it before it was going to happen. God told them about the 70 years when they were going to be restored before it happened and it happened. We look at those things and we see what a great God who knows the, 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 the end from the beginning. And then what we need to do is to take the prophecies that have yet to come true. And we look at the book of Revelation and we see the trials and tribulations that are going to come in that time after the rapture of the church. And just as surely as they came true in the past, they're going to come true in the future. Because of that, Revelation 2.7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. What does it mean to overcome? In 1 John 5, 4 through 5, for whatever is born of God, whoever is born again, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Father, I just thank you, Lord, that you just make these things just so clear. Father, you, you made it clear back then in Jeremiah's day so much that, Lord, they refused to hear, but they were not without excuse. And it's the same with us, Lord. And so I pray for the people in the church that we would have an ear to hear. That, Lord, just that little test of the fruit in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, that we would examine the fruit of the Spirit and make sure that our fruit is fresh, that our fruit is ripe and it's good fruit and it's not rotting. That, Father, we would have an ear to hear, that we would know, Lord, that we have overcome the world through our faith and our trust in you. And, Father, that would be a strength to us. It would be an encouragement to us. But, Lord, I also pray that it would be a motivational factor in our lives as well, that we would truly go forth and make disciples. And so, Father, we thank you for tonight. We pray, Lord, that we would see our part in the body of Christ. And, Father, our church would be the better because, Lord, of the people who attend it and each one doing his part. So, Father, we just thank you and praise you for all of your goodness, for your grace and your mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? We are having our couple's um, Valentine's banquet that we are, Valentine's dinner. We're taking sign-ups now. I think we have close to 19, I think it was, sign-ups. And so it's going very well. We think we even have more than that, don't we, Rose? Something like that. We were kind of going over it the other day. So it's a blessing. The Lord's bringing people. And so I encourage you to sign up for it if that's something God is leading you to. If not, we can always use help that night, too, serving. That would be a blessing as well. God bless you guys. Drive safely going home. Good night. Thank you.
God bless you. 